0: To celebrate black history, The Post and Courier is presenting a series of podcasts and video interviews featuring 12 dynamic South Carolina leaders to know. We talk to people from all over the state about their efforts to advance social justice, celebrate black culture, address community needs, and create a better world. Our podcasts and videos will be released monthly through January 2022. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, go to postandcourier.com slash blackhistory. Join us in learning about our state's remarkable change agents. Middleton Place National Historic Landmark is home to America's oldest and most important landscaped gardens. The historic site encompasses 110 acres, including the gardens, house museums, stable yards, and Eliza's house. Together, they tell the inclusive history of all who lived and worked here. Through exhibits, tours, and daily programs, visitors can learn about the Middleton family, including two founding fathers, and the important stories of the enslaved women and men and their vast contributions from engineering and landscaping to building and sustaining Middleton Place through the centuries. Information about special programming for Black History Month can be found at middletonplace.org. Middleton Place is open daily from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Today, we welcome Jerry Blassingame. Jerry Blassingame, greetings, good morning, hi. Good morning, how are you doing, Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for hosting us in this beautiful space and in this wonderful, fascinating space where you're doing all this really good work. Yes. I'm very eager to get to that very shortly. Okay. First, I want to understand a little bit about you and who you are and um, what. formed you and shaped you and brought you to this point in your life where you're running now very successfully for how long 20 22 years 22 years yeah. soteria yeah uh this community development corporation serving the community so importantly but how did you get here what was your
1: youth like where did you grow up did uh, you grow up in greenville uh, yeah I was born and raised right here in greenville i was uh, born over in the west greenville community mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh,
0: which now is so gentrified it's like the artsy part of town. yes right?
1: yes uh, a lot yep. of people that used to live there do not live there any longer yeah so people of much higher income bracket live there now
0: okay yeah
1: and so uh, but I uh, I frequent there a lot actually we own some property in West Greenville our nonprofit so it was a blessing to be able to Smart. own some property there yes <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a good
1: investment yes yes yeah <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, you know, grew up in Greenville. You know, all my life, I just I traveled around, but just you know, that's you know, my roots are here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like we talk about you know where I am now and looking back, I you know, I compost comes up. <laughs> you know, I was like Jerry, compost. Yeah, compost is this big glob of mess that you throw stuff in, and something good grows out of it one day, and that's right. what happened in my life. I got this big traumatic mess of life as a kid. Uh, my mother. The first big thing I remember as a kid at five years old, my mother was murdered, Adam. Yeah. Uh, her, her boyfriend murdered her in the next room beside my brother and I. Uh, I heard him fussing and arguing and then he said, you better leave before you see something you don't wanna see. And 10 minutes later, we heard two shots and we all got up around the house. And uh, the next morning I found out that my mother uh, was shot by this man twice in the temple and the guy shot my grandfather as well. My grandfather did not die that night but he died two years later from the gunshot As
0: was, And he was trying to protect your mom? Yes,
1: um, he, he ran, we all ran out of the house, and he ran back, his daughter, so he ran yeah, back and right. the guy shot him.
0: Well, I yeah. mean, that's the, a father's instinct. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Wow, and you were five. I was five, it was in January, so it was two Cold. months before my sixth birthday. And so my mother and I had been planning my six-year-old birthday party. Mm -hmm. So that was the second traumatic thing to happen in my life.
0: To not be able to have that. Yeah, and for a kid, I can imagine that's. Yeah. That's a critical thing. Yeah, to have your mom there
1: and almost definitely, yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, six is a milestone birthday for kids. You know, first grade, you know, and all that, and that never happened. So.
0: Wow. Okay, so. So that was the start, in a way, of things, and um, what a trauma.
1: Yes. And the thing about it is that you just live through it because no one, we never received counseling, any type of counseling. I had four of the siblings, I was a baby of five. My grandmother and my grandfather, we lived with them. They moved away from West Greenville to the other side of town, so we just like life as usual. Yeah, you know, we just- Forge ahead. Yeah, we just, you know, what do you do? Um, And so um, my grandmother was a great lady. Oh, she could cook, she was a great housekeeper, but she started drinking. Mm-hmm. And she drank almost every day.
0: Well, she just lost a daughter. Oh,
1: and um, her husband. and a husband. Yeah, and my mother was a twin. Her sister died two years before her. Oh my God. Yeah. So, so we all lived in that trauma. But being a five and six year old kid, I had no understanding of what I was in. Yeah. I was like, this is normal. Right. You know, it was normal to come home and everybody in my house was drunk. It was normal to have sleep for dinner. It was normal you know it was normal not to have the clothes that i needed you know it was normal but school was normal
0: school was a safe refuge
1: for you school was the place that i found refuge i love school i love learning i love reading i love art um i just love the people and my teachers they must have known my background and they really i look back and i can tell they took care of me
0: okay well because not all teachers are fully aware of the background of their students i mean the good ones i guess are but
1: well i was a inner city black kid that was being bused to the east side of town so i was one of two black students in a class so i wasn't i wasn't in an all black or mostly black school in the 70s i was in a mostly white school
0: okay and you were thriving yes in school in school yes And your teachers saw that you were performing well Mm -hmm. and understood something about your background, I guess, maybe, and so protected you. Right. Okay, so that was a stroke of luck or whatever (laughs) you might want to attribute that to, but a guardian angel. Yes.
1: I have a few of those.
0: Yeah. Okay. That came, <laughs> came along at different times
1: in your life, I yeah. guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and pushed you along. Mm-hmm. So, so then with school, then you found, uh, found your place. You found where it was you could succeed. You understood your own potential, I guess. Mm-hmm. You had people who supported you, who also uh, believed in, in, in you and your abilities. Yeah.
1: And in, in understanding PTSD now, I didn't then, um, some people just go off the deep end. Mine went to a creative space. Okay. I was I was reading and and creating things and and I loved art class. And I would create all these crazy things in art, and my art teacher liked me. Cherry, do more, you know, and that you know that fed me because I didn't have anything. My mom was gone. She was the person that I craved attention from, so I was looking for attention. And, Interesting. Yeah, in other places, and at nine years old, I got hooked on pornography. I found a pornography book, um. and that was the other thing that I poured myself into, and so. I'm an open book. I talk about all this stuff because it helps people, you know? Right, right. But, uh, you know, those things, you know, the art and then the pornography, my secret pornography addiction all the way through my teenage years, yeah. up until my 20s, I had a secret pornography addiction that no one knew about but in me. And, you know, then as I got older, my friends and I did it. But, you know, that was the two things that I kind of poured myself into just to get away from the pain. I was hurting and I was in pain, but I didn't know why. Why? Nobody set me and down. to you didn't to know say, how to deal with it? No. Yeah. Well, I thought I knew through pornography and <laughs> some of the other things, Good. but I lived in the inner city where, you know, drinking, drugging, you know, womanizing, that was a part, gangsters, drug, that was a part of our community. So I had two lives I was living. I was living this inner city life in my project neighborhood, and I would go to school with my middle to upper class white friends who liked me because I fit in with them. I was smart. I was in their classes, and they would take me home or invite me to their house to meet their parents. So I got to see another side that some of my friends didn't. Do you enjoy?
0: think that you were, you were making an extra effort to fit in? And ex, I mean, It sounds like you wanted to please your teachers, for example, mm-hmm. that you, you saw there was some potential there. They liked you and they encouraged you and, and, and they were in a sense substitute, not parents, but substitute adult authority figures who you could then strive to please.
1: Yes, it was, it was different different from my home. Yeah. You know, it was different from, you know, from my home and they just cared. You know, in a different. You know, my grandmother cared. Don't get me wrong; she cared, but it was different because I knew there was something better than living inner-city poverty life as a young black kid. I knew there was. There was more. But plan. at
0: what point did that occur to you? Because earlier you said you didn't realize that this wasn't normal. Yeah. Was a, but at a certain point, you yeah, must have started. yeah Yes. Figure at that a certain
1: out. point, because once I got to school and I saw kids wearing nice shoes and nice clothes, and you know, at school yeah. there were lunches and things. You know, it was just different. Oh. It, you know, kids was, kids other people would come back, live differently. Yeah, yeah, kids would come back from summer and say, hey, I went to Myrtle Beach. I went here. I'm like, you did? Where'd you go? Um, <laughs> you know? So I started to realize, oh, okay, there's more, you know, to life from other people. So then I guess,
0: and, and you excelled all the way through high school, right? And, and you were very creative and you were in art class and, and wood shop and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I am assuming you started to form in your own mind a path to the future for yourself. What, yes. What did you hope to do and then what actually happened to you?
1: So I was on track to be one of the the greatest black architects that ever come out of South Carolina. That was my dream. I was going to be one of the greatest black architects. I was going to design houses, buildings, you know, all kinds of stuff. Houses on the mountain, underground. House. I, I had all these you know things in my mind and I was really good at it. You know I want to You know, I got a two year full ride scholarship and I was on my way to Clemson, you know, to transfer when I got arrested. Um, And so, you know, and I'll back up a minute because my first couple years in college, I'm, you know, it's in the eighties. Crack is out in Greenville. Right,
0: crack epidemic, Uh, yeah.
1: The hip hop culture is out. A lot of my friends who were 18, 19, and 20 at the time were driving nice cars, wearing nice clothes, and I was still living off of a, uh, a check from the federal government from my mother. You know, I would get a couple hundred dollars a month, probably, I don't know, it was nothing. And I would probably give some of that to my grandmother for bills because we had to eat and and live and things. And so they were wearing nice gold chains and, you know, Adidas sweatsuits and Nikes. And I wanted that, too. So I started selling drugs after school. I first started watching for the police. Fifty dollars a day. Then it went to one hundred dollars a day. And then I bought a car and a guy started paying me two hundred dollars a day just to drive him around and drop off his drugs after school. So I would go to school finish school and go stand on the corner for a couple hours and it's real money yeah you know back then you know you know you're talking seven eight nine hundred dollars a week sometimes and so I got to the point to where I learned the business just by being around one of the kingpins because I was his man his Mm -hmm. like lieutenant Mm -hmm. I did not have to touch anything and he got hooked on crack and his boss came to me one day and, and threw me nine ounces of cocaine to say hey You're the man now. You need to take over this guy's business. I can't call names, but take over his business. So I took over the business. And I came home from from school one day and a guy dropped a bag of money on me. It was $20,000 cash money. That was my profit that I made in one day from selling crack. Wow. Yeah. So I'm like, an architect could never make this much money. I'm done. So I dropped out of school and I started my career as a drug dealer. In a way, though,
0: you were primed yeah, you know, there was a, a, a weakness, maybe, if mm-hmm. that's fair to call it. You, you had grown up with the, the, in these two worlds, seeing the potential, but also dealing with the reality of, 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 of poverty. And, and I could see how it would be very easy, how one would be very susceptible to that, mm-hmm. uh, given those circumstances. Yeah.
1: Yeah. um,
0: It was a no brainer in a way, right?
1: Exactly. You know, when you can have resources and money and do things and, uh, you know, go to school for six hours and just wait for four years to get a degree, (laughs) you know, Um, (laughs) which that's the thing to do. I encourage all kids to do that. You know, (laughs) don't, don't take my role. But, you know, back then it was like I got all this money and and the attention and fame that I've been craving my whole life. Yeah. And, and I could go jump on a plane and go to Las Vegas or go to Mexico or go buy this car, that car, those shoes, and go buy everybody on the block a pair of shoes, which I did sometimes, you know, it feels good. And, you know, I took care of people. You know, I was the person, I was the good drug dealer, what people called me, I would take care of people. You Interesting.
0: Know? Yeah. So you've always been taking I've care of people. I've always
1: been taking care of people. I've got a good heart, you know? <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. It's just in different ways. Yeah, that- yeah. Interesting. Okay, so then you, this uh, ends abruptly, mm-hmm. I guess, or yeah. well, not so abruptly, but...
1: Well, well abruptly. I got I got arrested twice. The first time okay. I got arrested, um, I got a 15-year sentence suspended to nine months and five years probation. I know that's a lot, but I only did four months in prison. Okay? okay. So I got out, I couldn't get my Pell Grant because of the uh, crime no, I mean, bill, you know, felony, you know, and so I'm like, okay, I couldn't find a job because no. of a felony, so guess what I did? We went back to doing oh what you were Oh my God, doing. yes. Everybody was waiting on me to come back and, and, and bring my drugs back to the street. So I did it. It was easy. It was an easy path. Six months later, a friend of mine set me up. He got caught and told the guy, told the detectives about me. They were like, oh, Jerry Blassingame. And they, the police did not know who I was. They knew my name, but they could never catch me because they didn't know who I was. And when they finally caught me, they was like, you're Jerry Blassingame? Thought you were going to be some big, <laughs> big dude. Interesting. Yeah, because, you, know, you know, I was doing so much and moving so much dope on the street, they thought oh. I was just... Some big, tough guy. Yeah, but I was just a little, little skinny, puny guy with a lot of money. <laughs> with a lot of money. Yeah, right. and so they... Um, yeah. They, you know, they you know, they arrested me and I had a lot had eleven drug charges. Distribution of cocaine, transportation of cocaine, tracking of cocaine. Conspiracy. Oh my god. It way, was way, way, the way. list goes on and yeah. on and that, you know, I looked real. Was bad. it all crack or was it also cocaine? It was it was, it was cocaine. I didn't get caught with any crack, okay. um, but I was dealing a lot of cocaine. I was yeah. I was uh manufacturing crack. Yeah. I was I was cooking up and, and putting a lot of crack on the street, but I never got caught with any person. I got caught with powder cocaine.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and this time you served longer, I guess?
1: Well, yes, this was a 20-year sentence uh, and it was, it was supposed to be violent because of the conspiracy, uh, uh, because of the transportation trafficking. I pleaded and they threw out the trafficking charges, so I got 20-year nonviolent, in which I was supposed to do 51% of that sentence with good behavior. Uh, I only served three and a half years on that sentence. Why? Uh, Because of my guardian angels. Guardian angels. So, <laughs> when, I, when I went into the, the, the jail system, I was distraught. No one accepted my phone calls. Everybody left me. Uh, it was just crazy. I was married at the time. My first wife divorced me before the ink was dry on my indictments. Why should she stay with me? I got a 20-year prison sentence.
0: Well, can you blame kids. her?
1: And, um, and so, I put myself into the Bible. And I, I grew up not believing in God. I didn't think God existed. As you can see, what kid would believe in a God that take their mother and never let them meet their right. father? So I didn't believe in God. And so my sister, who, who was a drug addict as a teenager, had became a Christian. And she started talking to me about God. You need to change your life. I'm like, no. But finally, she broke me down and I believed and um, became a Christian, started reading the Bible. And when I got to the prison system, um, which was in like November of '95. Um, I just got involved in the Christian community mm-hmm. and started reading the Bible, going to church, and I started writing, and I just felt like I shouldn't be here. And Adam, this funny thing, everybody who would meet me, they would be like, what are you doing here? You don't look like you need to be here. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, wow. It was a cognitive dissonance yes. given who you are. and. You know, just the way I, I, I'm a teacher at heart. And so when I went into the prison system, my job was a tutor. I would teach guys how to read. I would help them get their GED. I've always been a teacher. I love to teach. And so I would just, I'm a helper. I would help people. And so no one was like, what are you doing here? But anyway, um, I started writing. I would journal every morning. I would pray. I would study my Bible and I would write what I want to do. So I started planning for a nonprofit because I knew that when I got out of prison, If I didn't do something, I was coming back. Nobody nobody was
0: gonna hire you.
1: Exactly, along with the the other 25,000 men and women who were in prison who I kept asking, why are you here again? They were like, I couldn't find a job, I couldn't go to school, I couldn't live with my mom, she was on Section 8, and the list goes on. You know, there's 48,000 collateral consequences that punish people in America who've been previously incarcerated. And so in South Carolina there's 7,000 collateral consequences. Things like fines, fees, uh, housing, you know, job placement, and things like that, you know, you know, occupational licenses. You know, you can't get licensed as an architect. If you, you, you know, you can't get you know licensed for barbering. Just things like that.
0: As if the system sets
1: you up for failure as opposed to rehabilitation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I started writing a plan. So for three and a half years, a every plan. day, a plan. Oh, a plan. Plan. And so, because, you know, theater <laughs> in prison, it's a thing. It is a sorry, thing. Sorry, and, and yeah. you're the sort of person yeah. who would write a
0: play. <laughs> well, so, no. sorry about mishearing you there. Okay, so it, no, but, you started putting yeah, a plan together. But
1: every day, I would get up in the morning, 5.30, 6 o'clock, sometimes 4 or 4.30, whatever time I would get up, and I would just write page or two pages in my journal. And it was what I wanted to do. I would write people, I would do research, read newspaper articles, find out what was going on, and I would, I was putting the plan together.
0: And, and what, I mean, did you have this idea, the Soteria idea early on?
1: It was kinda of, sorta, of, it kinda of came toward the end, but I knew there had to be something, you know, cause I couldn't find anything like this that when a person get out, they could go, cause I didn't have anybody. My, my grandmother had passed away. All my brothers and sisters, you know, were, were kinda of gone. Mm-hmm. One of my brothers had, my, well, one of my brothers and sisters had got hooked on crack themselves. So I didn't have anybody with resources, so I'm like, I no got support be on my system. Own, no at support all. system. And so I had to create my own support system. And I started pen paling with a church out of Clemson. Yeah. Clemson United Methodist Church. And they changed my life. There were lawyers, there were doctors, there were professors in that class that wrote me, you know, monthly, encouraging me. And I'm like, these people really care about me. And I thought it was just faking, but they really cared and, and and they were really concerned about me and my future and um, I told them that I wanted to get out and start a ministry and they paid my way through Columbia International University to take Bible classes and so they were very serious and uh, they really encouraged me that people can change and that people do love Mm -hmm. and and when I told them about my plan which is
0: part of the Christian ethos
1: yes I mean
0: it's never too late no for anybody right and I mean to to em- embrace God but it goes beyond that yes. you know a real christian ethos goes beyond that yeah. it's, it's really about
1: transformation right yeah. and I always you know what i tell people is you know you put uh, overalls on faith you know we believe things but you got to work yeah and and so these people put overalls on their faith and yeah. they showed me that look we're not just going to believe we're going to help put, you make it help happen you and do things and they came to visit me sometimes you know and did things so it was really wow. encouraging and um, you know when you tell people that i have this plan to do this when I get out and they say, Oh yeah, right. But they say, what can we do? How can we help you? Let well you that know. was
0: probably the thing that made the difference though, don't you think?
1: Oh, almost definitely.
0: I mean they they understood, plus you are who you are, smart and creative and you know, so I'm sure they they understood the sort of person they were dealing with fairly early on. And then somebody with clear ideas about what they wanted to do,
1: I mean, how do you resist that? Right. And I love the write, I'm a, you know, I love the write, I was writing then and they saw some of my writings and I had, you know, I used to print all my letters and I was, you know, study architecture. Back then we didn't have CAD, we had to hand write all of them, so I had pretty neat handwriting as well, so that helps too, so, yeah, um, uh, you know, and, and they often talked about that. And this guy's educated. Yeah, exactly, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, so, I,
0: it's, there's, there's a, arguably a little bit of a, you know, prejudice there, but people if they see that there's real potential, or if they think they recognize real potential, then they're more inclined to engage. Right.
1: And I'm going to double down right here because I look at people who people may say don't have real potential. But actually do. It, they, they do. Of and course. I, yeah. And I have to look at all these people, even people who can't write or have messy handwriting or can't read, I have to look at them and say, I want to help you.
0: Yeah. And yeah that's well, what? Why should that hinder right. their ability to... Okay, so tell me about implementing the plan. So so you're you're out,
1: and now you have this plan, and it must have been difficult. It was. Yeah, Yeah, I have this plan, and people are are seeing it, and they're not believing it. Uh, One, you know, here I am, young, you know, 20-something-year-old black man with a criminal background in Greenville, South Carolina. You know, who's going to believe in me? You know, know, I got 11 drug charges. I got 11 years parole. I got parole with 11 years parole. And so every job I went to was like ah, you know, but uh, we you know we did it. You know, my wife married me a year before I got to prison in ninety eight, and because uh, I showed her the plan and she was like, oh wow, this is great. And everybody thought she was crazy.
0: It was sort of the opposite of what happened earlier. Yes, You're, as soon as you got arrested, your first wife said, uh oh. Yeah. But this time you it was the other way around. Yeah. She she understood that right. you were onto something.
1: Right. Yeah. Even before you left. Prison. Yeah. Exactly. So we, you know, we got a little small apartment and we started working. I got a job and you know, she already had a job and we just started plowing away. It was tough. You know, there were days when there were no food or there were days when we couldn't pay the bills, uh, but we made it. And, and I'm still planning this organization. I, I got released in March of 1999. so Tyrion was started in June of 1999. So a few short months after I was released, I had a, a you know, a nonprofit corporation and people's like, wow, you are serious. Said, yes, I'm serious. You know, because I, I knew that I needed to help myself, too. Right. I always tell people I'm the first graduate of the program. Everything that these guys are doing, I did it. I did financial literacy. I fixed my credit. Uh, I became a homeowner. I bought cars. I became, I have several small businesses. You know, I've created this business. So Soteria is a business. It's a nonprofit, but it's a business. Um, and so everything the guys are doing, I did it. And so I wanted them to see that, you know, you don't have an excuse. Right. And so, but early on, we didn't have all this. I would write letters to guys. I would do hygiene kits for guys when guys would get out, you know, go do Bible studies in prison. Um, and, you know, every church I was a part of didn't believe me. That's another thing I talk about in my book, is, uh, you know, just how the church is kind of like, uh, I don't know about you, you've been in prison. I'm like, what? You know, and that was a little hurting for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, you know, but I managed to get through that. You know, I pastor for seven years, so I understand um you know but you know that's a whole other thing that we got to work on is that forgiveness in second third and fourth chances even you know that's the thing that we need to be doing but those of us who are christians we don't see it um and so i had to get through that as well uh, the very first church i was a part of that i told them i had a call in my life to do this and uh, the pastor's wife said are you really supposed to do this is this what the church need to be doing i'm like wow Um, But I was uh, a part of another church that really helped me and got behind me and helped push the to the next level. Yeah. Um, But, um, you know, we got our first uh, house. It was a rental property. Uh, Mike Chesser, uh, he passed away last year. He's a great mentor of mine. I went in in his office, shared my story with him. He called his whole staff in. He said, we've got to help this guy. And they rented me a house, a three-bedroom, two-bath house for $350 a month, all utilities included, and furnished the house. And that was, that was when we put our first four guys it was in 2001, put our first four guys in the house on Mason Street, uh, near off, off Pendleton Street here in Greenville. Okay.
0: And that must have liberated you a little financially to begin to do other things with the, with the business, yes. setting it up. Yeah. Yes,
1: and so we had a car, we had a Honda Accord that we used to, to um, get the guys back and forth to work. We moved from Greenville to Abbeville because the lady who played the piano in the church asked me if i wanted to buy her house because jokingly one day i went in her house which was a a old bed and breakfast in abbeville full of antiques and i said i'd love to have this house one day
0: but it was haunted it turns out so you couldn't stay
1: (laughs) well the town was haunted the whole town (laughs) with all due
0: respect to those who live in abbeville
1: no um but we stayed there for four years uh had two kids there and moved back to greenville but abbeville is just a small quaint town uh, we're all from Greenville, big city, but yeah. we we kind of grew our ministry out of Abbeville. So I was uh, commuting back and forth every day from Greenville to Abbeville. And I was also working with a geotechnical engineering firm at the time. Um, and so that was my part time job, um, you know, because I wanted to get back into architecture. And uh, I found out that I couldn't get licensed, license. So I got hired with this geotechnical engineering firm. And finally, I walked off and gave them a two weeks notice and said, I need to do Soteria full time. I didn't have a paycheck. So I left a good paying job for no paycheck to pursue this uh you know this career and uh, but
0: you had a little capital in bed I mean you had a nest something no no you were
1: just on faith no I didn't have anything yeah you know I remember you know one day I was coming in to the house it was midday for something and the uh the electric company was turning my power off I remember an, another time when we were laying in bed one night you know, getting ready to fall asleep, and the tow truck came up and repoled our car.
0: Oh. Yeah. So it's been a rocky road. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So so let's <laughs> um, back. We're not back up. Tell me now, what Soteria is. What do you do specifically? What's your mission, and how do you go about it?
1: So, in a nutshell, we advocate for men and women who's been incarcerated. For economic and social justice to put tools in their hands so that they can be successful citizens. All the tools that we use are housing, education, employment, advocacy, and affirmation, which we look at mentoring and teaching, Bible studies, and things like that.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you're preparing. It's, it's, but it's more than a reentry program. You're employing people and paying them. Yes. You're providing them transitional housing mm-hmm. at little to no cost. Right. You're providing them food, mm-hmm. clothing, mm-hmm. especially when they're just released. Just released you just give have them a anything. package, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, we give them a, a first-day package when they come out with underwear, sock, deodorant, all the hygiene stuff they need. If they need clothes and boots, we get those as well.
0: So you're removing all of the X factors mm-hmm. from their lives mm-hmm. and of course anybody who's fresh out of prison is faced only with X factor right typically exactly that's all you have right. like okay now what do I do right and instead you've removed all of those X factors mm-hmm. and so you've set the stage to retrain them and and, and give them skills and faith in themselves. Mm-hmm. So how what do you do? They ha, you have a wood shop, right? Yeah, we
1: have a wood shop. Uh, we have a social enterprise called Sotiri at Work. Okay. And when the guys first get out, everybody has to work the first thirty days in that wood shop, and we give them a stipend, some type of pay, while they're you know getting acclimated. Because you have to have an ID, or a driver's license, a security card, birth certificate, and most people get out of prison don't have that. Right. So it takes about thirty to forty-five days just to become in America. Right. <laughs> you know, a full human being. Yes, yeah. You know, when you get out of prison, you know, they give you a prison ID, but the, the a DMV won't take that Except state that. issued prison ID as state issued identification. Who you been
0: part a- of the problem <laughs> we we're talking about before, where, you know, the, the, the system itself is just not really set up to yes.
1: help. Yes. You know, you would think the DMV and Vital records and all these people who are state agencies would work with the prison system. That when a guy walk out, they say, "Here, Mr. So and So, Mrs. So and So, you're a citizen again. You're a human being again." Right. But they don't. And so we help them with all that stuff at first. Mentoring, we make sure they get a mentor from a local church or a business, somebody to walk with them. So you partner with third parties? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, financial literacy, they have to take financial literacy every Saturday. We do different Bible studies during the week. Uh, we have a chiropractor that comes on Monday, we do health and wellness. Uh, the guys go out on outings. And so we have different things, there's something to do every day. Yeah. Uh, They eat three meals a day, they eat breakfast, they get a lunch to take with them, and we have somebody that cooks dinner at night. We have three vehicles where we take them everywhere they want to go. They they get a ride back and forth to work, probation and parole to the doctor, um, to the grocery store if they need to go pick up things that they have with their own money. So we take them everywhere they need to go until they get their own driver's license.
0: Amazing. And in the meantime, they're able to save money. Yes. Because they don't have to spend all this money.
1: They have to save as a requirement.
0: Okay. Okay. So you and it's a one-year program. Yep. After which, now theoretically, they're in a position to strike out on their own, but a lot
1: of them don't. They stay with you. Yeah, they stay. So we have a couple graduates who work who are who are staffers. Uh, we have our my director of uh, programs is a graduate. A, a couple of guys work in our wood shop are graduates that work for us. They're full-time employees of Sutera, so we we're able to give them a job, and you know, and a, a couple of them rent houses that we have uh you know that we prepare for that low-income housing
0: right because in addition to the transitional housing you also have 14, 14 I think, low-income rentals. low-income rentals yeah okay so well this so this is very interesting so you're operating a non but you you have a lot of earned income mm-hmm. so you're not only relying on philanthropy you right. know the, or the government uh, or the government <laughs> although i suppose you also qualify for grants we and do things like that because yes. you're, so you're getting grants, you're getting earned income, you're getting philanthropy mm-hmm. donations, uh, you're you're selling the products that are made in the wood shop. Yep, like this table.
1: You're, this is one of the tables that, that we our guys made. You're
0: generating rental income. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: so you have multiple sources, multiple streams. That must income. make it a little easier. But a little bit. A, yeah. little bit. a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, and
0: it's yeah. easy is probably the wrong word <laughs> to use. <laughs> yeah, It's, <laughs> right? yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's always <laughs> it's work. Never easy. Yeah, it's always work.
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow, okay, that's amazing. And so, and you've been at it for 22 years. How has it evolved over that course of time?
1: Well, um, for a good bit of time, there were no staff people. It was just me and probably one person and a lot of volunteers. You know, volunteers are volunteers, you know. They come when they want to, they got families and you know, you can't say, hey, do this for me. So it was tough because I was the man, I did everything. I carried this thing on my back for a lot of years and it was daunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had to do it because I knew I was called to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my family suffered a lot for it, and now I'm able to push push some of that work on other people. Okay. Uh, so I have nine staff people that work for me now, including men in the program and some professional people. Uh, who well, the we guys in thanks. the
0: woodshop just told me that you're like 24 <laughs> seven. Yeah. So
1: have you really been able to pull back a little bit? I, I have. Yeah. I have pulled back, but I love. This is my life. Yeah. Um, I still run this organization like a startup. That's why it's so successful. My heart's in it and they know it. I love, I love people, I love hard. And um, when you, you know, when you give somebody something, you trust them, with. that's fine, but this is me. Soteria Mm -hmm. is who I am. It's it's, It's it's an expression of of who you are. Yes, and so everybody, you know, I'm I'm, I'm here, but I'm not really 24 seven, but they know if they want me, they have access.
0: To yeah you. you're available. Yeah, yeah I'm
1: available. So,
0: Soteria obviously fills an important void it seems to me. Mm-hmm. You're doing something, you're running a program that just is not widely available but arguably should be mm-hmm. or something like this but it's also hard to scale this up. I mean how do you, have you thought about ways to implement this kind of solution in other South Carolina cities or to mentor somebody else who might start up something similar somewhere else, or maybe even convince the powers that be that uh, the government itself should embrace programs like this. Uh, and if it were government, it would be scalable. Mm-hmm. You know, it could they could do something with all of the prisons right. theoretically? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, scalability, in other words, is an issue, and mm-hmm. so it's an issue for any nonprofit. Right. right? Any nonprofit is doing something relatively local and relatively limited mm-hmm. and can't really scale up to the full capacity to meet the total need. Mm-hmm. And I suppose neither can you.
1: Yeah. And you, so how do you get past that? So we've been talking about scaling me and my board for the last couple of years. And South Carolina is a funny place, I'm just going to be real and honest with you. You know, Jesus said a prophet gets no honor in his own hometown. So. I've been able to do more outside of South Carolina, in Greenville, than in my own hometown. Uh, Other organizations have taken our model and have scaled it to the nth degree. South Carolina is just kind of just watching Jerry. You know, I'm a homegrown boy here. You know, and they're looking at me like, oh, that's just Jerry. It's like your uncle or your brother. Oh, that's just Pete, you know? And so um, I'm even working in Liberia. We've taken our model to Liberia, and people in Liberia are using some of the resources that we have so it is scalable and we are going to scale one day but I think it's bigger than scaling we have to get in into the systems those of us who are impacted need to be empowered to lead in in the institutions themselves. yes and so my sights are just more than scaling you know yeah I want to scale Soteria but I may not be the one that's running it you know I want to be the president one day or something like that I want to be somewhere, not maybe president, but I want to be able to make decisions. We have to be in positions. Those people who've been impacted need to be in decision-making places in order for America to change. Not only people- Because you know. Yeah, not only people who've been impacted by incarceration, but black people, women, all of us. Right.
0: The people affected by policies and, and that are not generally Helpful. Yes, are the ones to understand best
1: how to reform those policies. Yeah, exactly, and, and and so I think that's where we're going. We have to go. You know, we have to get to that place. You know, my good friend Glenn um, says it like this. Glenn Martin from Just Leadership says, "Those who are closer to the problem are closer to the solution, but furthest from the resources and the power." Mm, so true. You know, and so I want to get to a place so I have resources and power. There's no way that I could have grown Soteria with my hands out. Yeah. I don't want to be controlled right. I can't be bought and I'm not for sale
0: right yeah you had to do it yourself right and you had to do it this way but now you're in a in a funny position where you're not getting quite the support you should arguably mm-hmm. institutional support right or governmental support right or whatever uh, that's very interesting so where else are you working Liberia where else yeah you know, you know just um, you know, just around or, the U.S., uh,
1: yeah. I'm consulting with uh, uh, a small nonprofit out of Florida uh-huh. uh, right now. You know, they're using our model, and I'm doing Zoom, you know, yeah. with them. Yeah, oh, great. That's um, great. You know, a couple of places around the country, just yeah. call all the time. I'm I'm doing a lot of Zoom conferences right now with different people.
0: Understandable. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, so it's been really good. People can, I'm, I was traveling a lot, but now I'm more active accessible through zoom so you know but I love teaching I love training I love um, telling people about what we do and, and how we do it you know even in even in South Carolina now things are opening up so I don't want to be as hard on Greenville in South Carolina but you know people are asking because you know we have something at work and this this works you know in, in the last five years our rate our recidivism rate is only four percent if people who graduate or come through our program you know that's uh, impressive you know because you know it works um, you know, um, people who get faith, uh, understand finances, walk in obedience, you know, something happens.
0: Well, and they're learning essential life skills that are marketable. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys in the wood shop are not only learning how to rebuild their lives but they're learning how to use some of them already have some of this experience you know uh, but but they they, they're doing something and especially in this market the real estate market is booming yes after all yes carpentry is a skill in demand Mm -hmm. so you're giving them genuine opportunities you know once they graduate the Mm -hmm. program yeah
1: and you know even more than resources a lot of these men and women haven't been loved Mm -hmm. They haven't had families to really care about them, and um, I try to give people what I need. Mm -hmm. I need love. I need somebody to care about me. So a lot of the people who I help, they are just just like me. They came from broken homes, trauma, and at first it's like, what do you want from me? (laughs) Why are you giving me this? Why are you hugging me? Why are you telling me you love me? But then they get it. Like this is genuine, and so um, that's why the guys who stay—that's the only
0: somebody like you can do that can provide that in a convincing way mm-hmm. because you've lived that experience yourself and they know that so they know it's
1: real yeah and so lived experience should count for something should so somebody should give me a phd then right yeah <laughs> yeah somebody should
0: seriously yeah yeah an honorary degree or uh, something or two or three or something <laughs> given what you're doing here jerry blasting game thank yeah. you so much this is really quite an extraordinary operation. I'm so glad to be able to meet you and to learn about Soteria. Um, I'm just thrilled. And it's, it's really kind of touching you know, to see what's happening here.
1: Well, Adam, thank you so much. It's my pleasure you know, to talk and with you. you been so generous with your time and your stories.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing. I hope you keep it up and I hope you convince others to embrace this model. Good luck. Well, thank you. Yes. Now, a word from our sponsors.
1: We come from every walk of life.
0: We're proud of who we are and what we believe. We are among the 200,000 people
1: who work for Bank of America. What would you like the power to do?
0: 12 Black Leaders to Know is a special series of The Post and Courier, produced by Chris Zeller, with interviews conducted by Adam Parker, and video production by Matthew Crum. Thank you to our sponsors Bank of America, College of Charleston Master of Business Administration, South Carolina Governor's School for the Arts and Humanities, Claflin University, Neffron Pharmaceuticals, South Carolina Whitmore School, Ingevity, South Carolina Buy Black Locally, Trident Technical College, and Middleton Place. To learn about South Carolina's pantheon of social justice warriors, visit postandcourier.com slash blackhistory.